Dr. Tom Eglund, thanks for coming on the show now. We're, uh, this is official now. This is recording. Well, you're an official doctor now, so I know. we can have just a conversation. Now. I know. I've been referring to you as Dr. Eglin. Now, it's, is it Tom? Like, we were, we were joking about that outside. Like, it's so weird now. Um, and me and my wife always joke. It's like, when I when in public now do I actually introduce myself as Dr. Logan Noon? Because I don't want to be at, like, dinner parties being like, oh, I'm Dr. Logan Noon. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't do that. So okay, I, I wouldn't okay, know, yeah. You know. I don't want to be like Mr. Pretentious over here, yeah. Or I guess Dr. Pretentious. Dr. Pretentious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's kind of a, uh, it just feels weird now being on the other side of medical school, about to start residency. Um, you know, m- our apartment's empty. We're about to drive 2,700 miles, and here we go. Yeah. It's quite an adventure going across the country. Yeah. I did it a couple times going back and forth from Seattle to Atlanta, or Yakima yeah. to Atlanta. And so you are an emergency room physician now. Um, from Yakima, working at the school now in the local hospital and doing search and rescue. You do a ton of crazy, awesome stuff. Um, trained in Emory, um, but it, you had like a weird path to becoming an emergency room physician. Yeah, I started off in Atlanta in medical school at Emory. Okay. And I'd had some conversations with um, Corey Slovis, who is the director of the emergency program at that time, about whether to do emergency medicine there or internal medicine there mm-hmm. versus maybe internal medicine in Seattle. And so those were my okay. two programs I applied to um, for residency. Just and two? Yeah, it was a different, a different world. It was a different world. Oh, wow. That yeah. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> and so Seattle was my first choice because it was kind of coming home. So okay. I ended up going to Seattle internal medicine. But somewhere we were having a great time. Having mm-hmm. a, I really was doing rotations with a great group of fellow interns, but got kind of sick and got kind of depressed um, in the spring and uh, decided that I just wanted to get out. And so um, had to pay back the National Health Service for a pain way, way through medical school. So Okay. Yeah. So they initially were going to have me doing OB out of the back of a trailer in Lafayette, Tennessee or someplace that I'd okay. never heard of. And I just did, I knew I couldn't do that because I had no qualifications. So so at, at that point, I guess when you said you were depressed and over internal medicine, I guess let's pause there. It is because we are on talk of mental health with Logan Noon. Like, what did you not like the working as a hospitalist or in the internal med setting, or or just yeah, what was going on? I think it was a variety of things just kind of came together. You know, I think I got sick for a while, um, and then I just um, you know one of our um, few other things happened mm-hmm. and I reached out to talk to my mentor mm-hmm. um, who was assigned to me and he didn't have time to meet and I kind of just at that point said I'm leaving. Yeah, over it. Um, yeah. And so... Um, and did you know then you were going to go on to a different residency or was it like... Uh, so so yeah. at, that, at that time actually um, the hospital, one of the hospitals that we had quite a bit of interaction with the trauma surgeons oh, okay. and I really thought that looked cool. And so I thought I wanted to go into surgery and trauma surgery and so okay. I was going to, um, so it was a different path, but I yeah. had to pay back the National Health Service and so in trying to figure out that, I called one of my previous mentors in medical school, mm-hmm. a guy named Ken Walker, and um, he facilitated me going back and working at Grady Hospital in the emergency department for three years to pay back the National Health Service. Okay. And so that was essentially then your residency? No. So that was kind of my introduction back into oh, into okay. emergency medicine. And okay. so then I did emergency medicine residency to kind of complete the 
I worked in the medical emergency department at that point, so then okay. I did a residency to um, have a more, to, I worked in the ICUs, worked in pediatrics, pediatric ICU, ENT, OB, yeah. and did all those other rotations that I hadn't, hadn't done at that yeah. point. Okay, okay. And now you're back here in good old Yakima where you, you grew up. Yep. It seems the more I meet more physicians as I'm like in throughout this training, it seems like there's a lot of physicians like you who just kind of bounced around and did weird different things. And it's like I'm starting off in psychiatry. It's like I hope I like this forever. You know, it almost it makes me nervous. Well, I, th I think that's one of the I, one of my messages, I guess. You're asking me what I would tell people, mm -hmm. you know, and yes, you you've got a huge amount invested in what you're doing, in, but there's um, you know, if you find yourself in a situation you don't like, then change it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, change residency, change, you know, where you work, change your hours. Because. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know exactly where my future career is going to go. I might want to follow your footsteps and do some teaching. I think that would be really cool. Um, I really also liked palliative care, oddly, more, much more than I ever thought. Um, and I just feel... I don't know. It's like if I ever want to make a switch from psych, like that could be very interesting um, dealing with that. But okay, I digress. I'm sorry. So um, one thing I wa kind of wanted to ask you about, uh, being that today is what, May 19th, uh, 2021, um, we're in this weird place, I feel like, um, especially here, I guess here in America, with the CDC announcing that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks. Um, unvaccinated people still do but now we go out in stores in certain restaurants it's like we still have a mask requirement and now it's like i almost feel like a jerk if i start to push that envelope before the company changes their policy it's just such a weird place to be what do you think about this whole situation it's complicated yeah yeah it's really hard um if you go into a store in probably seattle or someplace mm -hmm. and people were you know probably a very high rate of vaccination in that group. If mm -hmm. you go into a store in a more rural town in Washington, you're going to see a lot of people without masks and probably most of them haven't had the vaccine mm -hmm. just because the the difference in rates of vaccination in you know different areas. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot of confusion. You know, if, if you see somebody without a mask, you don't know whether they're just being not vaccinated or they've been vaccinated yeah. if they're safe, if they're, you know, uh, risk, you know, just don't want people telling them what mm -hmm. to do sort of thing. Yeah. So. Government's telling me what to do. Yeah. It's just, so I don't know. I mean, do, do you think we as physicians need to almost start like pushing the envelope a little bit with like, for instance, Safeway, like going into like a grocery store where we've been so accustomed to wearing masks now for like over a year or it's, do we have to wait for uh, these companies necessarily to change policy? Because I feel like, you know, for so long we've been like, we, okay, we need to follow the science, we need to get, all get vaccinated, that's the best way out of this. And now if the CDC is telling us, you know, we don't need masks as much for vaccinated people, like when do we as vaccinated people uh, start changing? And like how as physicians can we lead that? You mean do, when do we stop using masks? or? Well, you... I guess it just seems weird that for the last year, it's always been we want to follow the science. Right. And now that's the science, I feel like the head science community, the CDC is saying vaccinated people don't need masks, but the, a lot of these certain stores and other places haven't changed their mask policy yet, yeah. even for vaccinated people. Like, how can we like... So there's probably vaccine science and then there's social science. <laughs> yeah. Vaccine science says, I probably don't need to wear a mask because I've had a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Social science says, 
you know, we still ought to be setting an example and, mm -hmm. you know, feeling some solidarity, you know, uh, realizing there are people at risk for disease, for bad outcomes, and we still don't have the vaccination rates to ensure herd immunity. And so I personally still think I should be wearing a mask out in, uh, in stores and in places where mm -hmm. I'll be in close proximity to a bunch of other people who have, may or may not have had a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I now, that being said, when I'm in a classroom and I know all of my students have had the vaccine or all of my team members have had the vaccine, then I don't think we should, you know, should be required to wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have this weird, I feel like I'm almost developing this strange attitude where, you know, if someone at this point has not chosen to get vaccinated, because I feel like, you know, that it's not really, there's not waiting times to get the vaccine. You know, that's almost their, I guess, personal choice in some respect. And, you know, when when do we cross this line of when do I have to stop wearing this mask to protect that person who doesn't want to get vaccinated kind of thing? And I just, I keep thinking of this, our face has so many different muscles. And I feel like, you know, mm -hmm. as a social society, we need to see facial expressions. And from a psych perspective, like, I find myself trying to smile with my eyes way more than I ever used to, just to, like, show people that I'm smiling with a mask on, kind of like all these strange little things. Um, I don't know. I just feel like my attitude towards handling coronavirus has, has really changed um, since the CDC made this new guideline. And I want us to try to get back to a normal world of being able to see each other's normal faces. I absolutely agree. We want to get there. And it's just kind of in the meantime, you know, we, as a society, I think we, you know, the, the society gets to, the government determines certain rules of behavior mm -hmm. to sometimes protect people from what they want to do. You know, and that's why we have you know, laws on speeding and helmet use and, mm -hmm. you know, a number of things. And um, so I think this is a pretty clear example of the number of people who are at risk and die from the disease. Yeah. And um, there are things that we can do with vaccination and masks that can reduce that. And it's a short-term thing mm -hmm. uh, if we get people vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just, you know, if we keep getting people vaccinated, it's only a couple more months. That's not a big deal for me. Yeah. I still wish that the stimulus checks were tied to the vaccine. Like, get a shot, get a check. I thought that would, everyone would have gotten it. I, I think the stimulus check should have been tied to something, whether it's yeah. a, you know, work, performance vaccine. Or <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah. but, but I digress. Well, we'll get back to now talking, I guess, about kind of more your career. Um, you know, I really enjoyed working with you uh, in the emergency room. I actually think if I didn't go into psych, um, I, I definitely could have seen myself pursuing emergency medicine. It was a really cool setting. Um, but I also thought it was one of the more emotionally challenging settings in, in some respect, too. You know, you see these incredible tragedy, tragedies, excuse me, and then you have to hop on to the next case quickly kind of after that. You it, The decompression time is almost non-existent in some respect. Um, how do you handle that weird emotional environment, the highs and the lows? Um, you know, the best you can. Yeah. Um, I, probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast saw the, um, there's a picture on the internet of an uh, ER physician who was out in a parking lot, kind of kneeling down and, you know, um, going through the emotional 
kind of a distress of having lost a patient, you mm -hmm. know, somewhere during the early parts of the COVID thing. And I was looking at that and feeling, you know, really that connection. Then I was like, where does this happen that an ER doctor has that yeah. kind of time to go out to the parking lot to, mm -hmm. you know, work through it? Because we don't, you know. Mm. It is literally, you know, you go from a code, you do seeing somebody with a sore throat to, you know, seeing the next serious thing and the next not serious thing. So yeah. um, it's then, <coughs> so it is a process of learning how to handle that. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure that most of us got good training in that. Yeah. When, um, and I, I don't know if I mentioned to you, I was talking that uh, we had a didactic session on wellness, you know, later in the year. Um, and I presented some material that was initially kind of presented to me during our mountain rescue training. It's about psychological first aid. Mm -hmm. And when the person in our group who was kind of the leader in instituting that started it, I thought it was just kind of something might be good for some people, but really didn't apply to me since mm -hmm. I had gone through the medical thing as an emergency doc, and I dealt with that sort of trauma and stress every day and it didn't affect me that much. As we got into it and I started hearing more sessions, I was just like, well, you know, I don't know, the mountain rescue people need this that often, but you yeah. know, people in the ER and people in medicine need that, you know, almost every day. Mm -hmm. You know, so having some sort of self-assessment of where you are and what your mental health uh, state is and having a plan on how to help things, you know, when things get tough. And, and how to respond to stresses. Yeah. If, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you of course know the world of emergency med much better than me. Isn't the rate of burnout <laughs> higher in emergency med than other fields of medicine? It's high. There, yeah. It's high in a lot, in a lot, a lot of, of things. Medicine, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think in each specialty, maybe there's a different reason. Okay. You know, some specialties, maybe it's because you're doing the same thing every day in, yeah. in and out. Emergency medicine's probably because of the emotional challenges and mm -hmm. the moral, you know, uh, cost of, you know, being in the ER. Um, mm. And um, so I think there might be different answers for different fields of, you know, how do you deal with this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. how, so how do you personally handle the, that emotional burden? So one of the, uh, I mean, having, I, I think where you really get in trouble is when you're, start getting your finances in a situation where you feel like you have to work more than is mm. good for you. Because in emergency medicine, um, having interest and connections to people outside your job mm -hmm. is really important. And I can look back in my career and look at those times when I worked way too much. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I didn't think it was that much because coming out of residency when you're working 29 yeah. shifts a month, you know, um, but for the long haul in your life, uh, there's definitely a number for each person of, I think, how much time you can spend taking care of people who were injured and hurt and, um, and not have it cost a little too much in terms of your own mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there was, did you see that study that just came out that was like people who work long hours have higher blood pressure, shorter lifespans? And I, yeah, I, I mean, it's completely study, believable. But I, yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that's good advice, you know, and especially it's very hard almost for me to think of it in that respect because right now I'm graduating with such a balloon of, of student debt. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, I can't moonlight my first year. 
Um, but I can moonlight, you know, later on in residency. And for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's just like extra hours, extra shifts for a resident doctor. You can get paid pretty well too. Um, so it's very enticing, but yeah, I can see myself kind of following in, in that trap, you know, cause I'm so in debt, so in debt <laughs> and working those extra Saturday and Sunday shifts potentially. Um, but then getting isolated and then that kind of like hole, um, is, is yeah, kind of a scary place to be. Yeah, because you end up working a week, and then you work a weekend, and another week, and then you're 12 days on, and that's just... Yeah. You know, that can set you up for, for yeah. failure. Now through February 16th, join a clean and spacious Planet Fitness for zero enrollment and only $10 a month. With tons of equipment and free fitness training, it's the perfect place for everybody to work out. Even me, Mr. I can't sleep at night, so I keep dozing off during the day. Especially you, Snoozy. You'll rest easier and feel fit-tacular. Wait, how did you get in here? Join in club or at planetfitness.com. Zero enrollment, $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Hurry. Deal ends February 16th. See club for details. Yeah. So what would you, you know, when you started um, your career in, in residency, I know you kind of bounced around a little bit, but what I'm going through now is I feel incredibly scared to kind of start residency. You know, like I'm going to make a mistake. Um... You know, I still almost feel that kind of imposter syndrome kind of thing, like they made a mistake, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Like, what were you going through at the start of residency, and what advice would you try to kind of give that person? Hmm, that's a great question. Yeah. So, looking for your mentors, you know, uh, as soon as you land in your residency, try and find somebody who, um, maybe a year or two ahead of you in residency, who you can ask questions, mm-hmm. you can call anytime. Uh, an attending who uh, has more experience and is available to you. Um, And I think programs are probably a lot better about that these days in um, kind of assigning a mentor or keeping track of people. And uh, when I went through residency, I think um, we could have used more Mm -hmm. help in that regard. Okay. So now moving kind of past residency, like in the middle years of your career, whatever you want to call it, you know, did you ever, um, did you ever face any times where you were just over it? You know, maybe you can really, at, you know, the middle portion of your career, you re- reach a different uh, financial situation where you don't feel as much um, necessary need, I guess, to work. Did you ever have a time where you wanted to completely leave medicine and you were just over it? There were times that I thought that, um, I got very insecure mm-hmm. in my work, um, and I don't know if it's kind of a middle-age crisis, okay. but um, you know, when you're in residency and you're doing procedures every week, if not you know, several times a week, mm-hmm. um, and taking care of you know, critical patients just one right after the other, and then when you're in a community setting and um, still seeing those patients but on a less frequent basis, and you um, maybe have some erosion in your skills. If not, you may have some lack of confidence you know, in, in mm-hmm. things that you don't do every day. And then you have, if you miss an LP or have difficulty with intubation, I really started questioning um, whether I should be doing this anymore. And that was probably 15, 20 years ago that that mm-hmm. happened. And um, really thought about trying to get into some business or going back, getting a public health degree or a law degree okay. or something. And um, I think at that point, you know, it's kind of what I was saying about making mm. a self-assessment 
and making a plan, how do I address this, is really helpful. And kind of, you know, I didn't have that sort of um, framework at the time, so it took me a long time to work out of that. But um, there's so many um, possibilities for education and training and reviewing procedures and skills and knowledge these mm -hmm. days that um, that might be less of a problem, though I, th I still think there's a, a need for ongoing training for certainly emergency department doctors, but probably yeah. a lot of doctors for those skills that we don't do as often. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's just so much new things that evolve. It's it's. I feel like you almost have to be, in a sense, medical school, always kind of learning the new materials. And how did coming back and being a teacher? How did that kind of impact your career? I think it was. Um, you know, I was looking for something just, I think, uh, in emergency medicine, probably other med areas of medicine, too, it's always nice to have a niche, you know, something that you can do that um, <clears throat> that you can be special at mm. and you can take pride in. And I started doing it in wilderness medicine and joined the Wilderness Medicine Society and did some of the um, extra training and, you know, uh, mountaineering and mountain rescue mm -hmm. kind of training. Um, and, and so that was going to be my thing before I started teaching, and I found a lot of value in that, and a lot of felt a lot of self worth, and uh, as I do in teaching, you know, mm -hmm. I enjoy teaching, I enjoy the students, and it gives you something in addition to just your job. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think finding, you know, whether you're going to be the best at uh, or the most knowledgeable in your group about a certain presentation of a certain disease, or you know, if you're in a Pediatrics, it's easy to find something, you know, whether you're the diabetologist for your group or, mm -hmm. you know, something that gives you special worth and knowledge that is unique among your group, you know, of, or your peers. So that you, because it's so easy to compare yourself to everybody else and with the imposter syndrome that many of us mm -hmm. have and, or feelings of uh, inadequacies that we face. Um, it's great to have something where you go, I know, I, I know this, and I can help everybody else to know this. And, mm -hmm. and Very cool, yeah. It makes you feel like you're worthwhile. Yeah. So I want to ask you about, um, you know, this past weekend I graduated. Um, it still feels kind of like Congratulations. surreal. Yeah, thank you. Um, and uh, I had the honor of giving uh, the speech. I don't know if you had a chance to, to check Not, it out. I haven't yet. Oh, yeah, but it was, it was the beautiful thing about uh, these virtual graduations is you can view it on I your will. leisure. <laughs> it's, uh, and I was so honored to give the speech. But we, there was one portion where we read um, the oath. I guess, it's, is it the Hippocratic Oath? No, because we read that at the White Coat. There's some other oath. Um, I was it. I, it was might it? have been the Hippocratic <laughs> Oath. Yeah, and I know we did the white coat. Yeah, um, I thought it was a different one. But either way, there was one portion of this oath for graduate medical school where, um, you know, not giving any medicine that w could hasten uh, death or you know have death or mm -hmm. come you know quicker. And I've had a few episodes on this show about uh, dying with dignity le uh, legislation, um, <clears> and I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that. Um, and being a physician where we have to potentially navigate these waters. You know, as an emergency room doc, you obviously see death firsthand um, in probably a lot of unexpected ways, too, really sad, horrific ways. Um, what is your attitude towards uh, dying with dignity legislation, the whole euthanasia, basically taking medicine um, to end your life? 
I'm not against euthanasia or people being able, you know, letting medical people facilitate patients mm -hmm. having those medicines available to them if, you know, if there are pretty rigid criteria met as far mm -hmm. as, you know, having a disease that's going to have a painful outcome or debilitating. Um, I can, you know, people I've had as patients who've had something terrible going on, like, you know, the, the ones I can think of are, you know, dissecting aortic aneurysms in 90-year-olds mm -hmm. who don't, you know, are not healthy enough to undergo surgery. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pain of that is awful. Yeah. And being able to make them comfortable, even though that may, you know, hasten their death by mm -hmm. a matter of minutes to hours, you know, mm -hmm. something is... Um, you definitely feel good about you yeah. know, taking somebody who's screaming and writhing in agony and, and making them comfortable and, you know, their family can be there to hold their hand. and Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. It just gets so tricky and um, it's something that I want to kind of continue to... Yeah. You know, people say it's a slippery slope, which absolutely it is. Mm -hmm. You know, and just because the slope is slippery doesn't mean you shouldn't get on it and try, yeah. try and find the right place, you know. Well, and I think so many people have accepted, like, that example you just provided of, um, you know, giving someone pain meds when they have a dissecting uh, aneurysm, you know, off their a aorta. Well, except that's like, well, yeah, of course you're, that person's screaming, you'd want to, you know, uh, cut their pain away. But the other situations of, like, you know, pancreatic cancer or, you know, something that really has a terminal illness um, and you're in writhing pain, but over much, much maybe longer, months to maybe years, who knows, um, such a different attitude, but I really view those two situations as essentially the same thing. Yeah, you could actually draw it out in mm -hmm. a sense and say, okay, so you know the pain of the, the dissecting aneurysm is going to be over soon. Mm -hmm. And if you did nothing, it'll be over soon. Whereas, you know, the if somebody has pancreatic cancer can be quite painful too. Yeah. And are you going to, you might be committing that person to months of of that kind of suffering. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, again, it's a it's a really. I'm not against mm. you know people being able to end their suffering, mm -hmm. you know, and you you certainly have to have safeguards in place so that you know people are not ending their lives you know during a mental crisis rather yeah. than yeah yeah and I I just feel talking about <coughs> these things is people get so uncomfortable talking about you know death and dying and. Um, how often in the ER do you guys run into um, where maybe someone has a DNR that you didn't really know about, or how do you necessarily get all, always that information? So uh, if a patient is transferred in from a long-term care facility like a mm -hmm. nursing home, they should be transferred with that information. Okay. Um, also, it should be, if that information has been available to the hospital in the past, it should be in their medical records that we can look it up. Mm -hmm. um, and then... If it's a patient who that's an immediate issue, you know, we can ask the nurses or secretaries or whoever has the time to start looking through the records and calling family members and calling the people who have uh, the power of attorney for that, uh, that mm -hmm. patient to, to really see what their, what their goals and what their preferences are as far as life-sustaining care. Yeah, yeah. So one one thing that I wanted to kind of ask you about, um, you know, I feel like whenever we had didactics, we liked talking about um, politics, public health, and you know, I, I feel like especially experienced COVID now, 
one thing I've realized, and I think you'd agree with this, that doctors need to get more involved with public health, um, healthcare administration. Um, how, how would you encourage my generation of doctors, and, and even I guess your son and daughter who are now starting to be physicians too, just like me, how can we be better about improving this system? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, being advocates and being, you know, social media is a way that, of course, everybody can, can have a voice. Yeah, podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, where, wherever your social media platform mm -hmm. is, I mean, is a way that you can try and influence people. And don't be afraid to uh, speak your mind. You know, there are um, multiple instances of, you know, of physicians in emergency medicine who lost their jobs mm -hmm. early on, you know, when they were talking about the lack of N95s mm -hmm. or the lack of PPE or, um, you know, yeah. just bringing some of the you know, shortcomings of our addressing the pandemic, you know, bringing those to light and in violation or in at least against the wishes of the company that they're working for. Mm -hmm. um, and as time has gone on, most of those people are you know, are getting their jobs back or there's been recognition that they were whistleblowers yeah. or advocates rather, but at the time, you know, that uh, the penalties were pretty high. Um, positioning yourself so that you can afford to take a risk um, mm -hmm. is a good thing. Yeah, that um, seems to be kind of the theme you're, you're uh, well, you've kind of mentioned it twice today and, and how important it is to kind of enter being a physician responsibly, I guess, with the, it's, it just seems like there's, it's so easy to get into to holes or being forced to work. Yeah, I, um, I've had a couple incidents during my career where I thought I was going to lose my job over mm -hmm. something, and um, at the time, the, you know, the financial cost would have been huge. Yeah. Um, and I think now I'm in a position where I can, I have some freedom to mm -hmm. say what I think is right. And, you know, I think most of my partners are all people who stand up for their patients and say the mm -hmm. right thing. Um, so I've got a really good group that I work with and would have my back on, on yeah. any issue that would come up. So, yeah. The I haven't really woken up oh, until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, <laughs> I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner, really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Yeah. So how has your attitude towards medicine changed you know, from from being a starting physician, kind of like where I am now, mm -hmm. to to where you are now after however many years of experience. So I think you know, you're having a little bit more appreciation of you know, 
medicine on your one-to-one -one, um, approach with a patient and realizing that you know there is value in that um, even though sometimes you look at the greater landscape of um, medicine in America and realizing how inefficient we are with the dollars that we spend compared mm -hmm. to other countries and um, really admiring the physicians who take the time and spend their resources trying to change things on the, on the national scale. Mm -hmm. um, even if that's not my thing, primarily, I can, I can still feel good about what I do, you know, taking care of one patient at a time in the emergency department um, and be proud of the people, whether they're in emergency medicine or other areas of medicine who are doing that and not feel like I'm a personal failure mm -hmm. because I'm not doing it all, yeah. you know. So, you know, after all these years in the emergency room, how do you think we could make the emergency room experience better for psych patients and providers? Where to start? <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's a, so um, that question goes back, I think, decades, you mm -hmm. know, with the decentralization of psychiatric care um, and having really reduced, I think, the capacity for inpatient care for psychiatric patients mm -hmm. in this country. Um, and I think that we've gone too far where there are there's a greater need than there is um, capability of taking care of patients, Yeah. Um, both an inpatient and outpatient. And the EMTALA Act that the, all of emergency departments work under, okay. where we cannot refuse any patient mm -hmm. um, to take care of them, kind of has made the emergency department the default place to send yeah. anybody with a psychiatric problem. Mm -hmm. And um, if you look at all of our rooms, they are set up to handle you know traumas and yeah. bleeding. And, and we have one quiet room that has very little in it um, that we use for family counseling or psychiatric patients, but it, it's just not nearly enough. Um, no, yeah. And um, probably not the best, most comforting room mm -hmm. that we have. So um, it would require both investment in physical structures as well as um, increasing the number of people who can interact. Mm -hmm. uh, we also need to have more community outreach. I mean, it, it, it's a Everything. It's a yeah. broad-based <laughs> need, I think. Yeah. You know, that... Uh, yeah, I may want to work in, like, an emergency psychiatric room setting. You know, they're very rare and far far between. It seems like only really in big cities that have them. But, um, and it, I guess just so the listeners kind of know what, what Dr. Eglin was referring to, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think under, it was in the Reagan administration, they had all these centralized, or they used to have all these centralized um, psychiatric institutions in a sense, and under Reagan, they decentralized them uh, with the hopes that the communities would take on this responsibility um, to make community psychiatric centers. Long story short, it just they didn't meet the need, and it didn't it didn't really happen to the the level that was required after all those institutions were broken apart. And you know, obviously, those institutions were probably no walk in the park either <laughs> for patients, but. Yeah, it's just, uh, I, I'm finding, you know, after living through COVID this past year, I feel like I almost have to, um, contribute to the political space in some regard. I don't know. Um, whether that's, uh, trying to lobby or whatever. It's just cause it seems like the government needs to really change radically. 
um, to, to meet the needs. Yeah, the, the government could certainly pass the rules and the funding to, to change things a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in America, much of the political decision-making is based on funding and where the, you know, and so procedures and treatments that generate a mm -hmm. great deal of money tend to get more preference, I think, than um, things like primary care or psychiatric yeah. care or pediatric care. Yeah, you know, that are are maybe have a better return on your dollar, you know, mm -hmm. uh, investment, but you know they don't generate the income for big companies that get yeah. passed on to political action groups. So I have a question for you. So you know, it, I feel like if we look at the spectrum of um, politics for physicians, it's it's probably very broad. Um, but in my experience in an ER, so much of an ER is um, stuff that shouldn't be in the ER, right? It's like these primary care, like cough, stomach ache, things that are more appropriate for uh, just different facilities, urgent care centers, and you know maybe primary care physicians, whatever it may be. So I would think that emergency room physicians all want like a Medicare for all kind of system. Um, Am I wrong there? Or like, because I feel like that would make it, it would free up the emergency room for just traumas, just things that are more appropriate for emergency rooms. Well, um, it's one of those things you saw with um, Obamacare coming mm -hmm. in, where we've got a lot more coverage um, at Medicaid rates rather than Medicare rates. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't really improve access to primary care very much. So, you know, funding care and provision of care are really different. So, yes, if you give enough funding, to like primary care or something, then mm -hmm. eventually probably the supply would follow. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't automatically. And if you fund it at Medicaid rates, it won't follow because it doesn't usually sustain you know, growth in any aspect of medicine. Mm -hmm. It's just not enough. Okay. So Medicare for all, um, I think it would improve the distribution of Medicare, mm -hmm. uh, of medical care to a lot of people who don't um, or are not not able to get it, it won't solve the problem of lack of primary care or, you know, the uh, people who are in the emergency department who could be, you know, taken care of somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as the, you know, the populations we serve in the emergency department, you know, the, the truth is if we only took care of real life-threatening emergencies, we wouldn't be funded either. I mean, there's not, oh, okay. there, yeah, there's mm -hmm. not enough money making that either. So we need, you know, we probably complain about it, but we probably need those mm. patients who um, walk in and get a treatment and walk out. And yes, yeah. they could be treated somewhere else, um, but they certainly subsidize the care of the people who come in with you mm. know, multi-system trauma or sepsis. And okay. Interesting. Yeah, I guess I didn't really think of it that way. So it almost seems broken <laughs> in two regards. You know, the emergency room is almost requiring... Um, those patients for their own funding, mm -hmm. and, and that's fair, and it's just, yeah, I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. I mean, you know, at some point, you know, will we ever have any uncoupling from um, volume and acuity and th to um, reimbursement, or will mm -hmm. we have some concept of, you know, uh, investing the money in what would give us the best return for, our, mm -hmm. you know, our healthcare dollars? Mm -hmm. And one thing that, you know, I want to really advocate for moving forward is um, 
You know, unfortunately, there were some of my classmates this past year that graduated medical school like me, but weren't able to find training programs. <clears throat> and there's not enough training slots. Uh, there's way more graduates, excuse me, medical school graduates, than training slots available. Um, what would you see as a the best solution? I know it's like, well, create more training spots, but how is that done? How would you advise my generation to help working on this? Yeah. So again, that's a, a political solution to mm. a problem. Is that um, has to have the funding to fund those, you know, graduate medical education training spots mm -hmm. um, and assisting hospitals in their reimbursement to be able to fund residencies. Um, you know, and I think you have to have, you know, there are a lot of medical schools popping up. Um, yeah. And so if we are having more and more medical schools and not meeting that supply of students coming out with residency training spots, it's not going to help our supply of doctors mm -hmm. coming in. And some of them are for-profit medical schools, too. It's kind of yeah. um, interesting to, I mean, can't access loan forgiveness from a for-profit uh, institution. Kind of scary to think about. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, yeah, I, it's a problem. And yeah. I don't have a solution for that way. Well, Dr. Eglin, you know, I, I've appreciated, I've taken 40 minutes of your time now. I hope I've convinced you to uh, go run for Congress or something. I think you should. I think you'd be a great, great candidate, emergency room physician as congressman now. Um, but yeah, thanks again for coming on the show and talking to me about all these random things. I always enjoy talking with yeah. you. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Cool. All right, thanks. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a nature show host. In the native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got Geico, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. Geico will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. Geico. Great service, without all the drama. The I-didn't-realize-you-liked-me-that-way deal. Because it's one thing to receive McDonald's, but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you McDonald's breakfast still hot in the bag. Appreciate you. There's a deal for every morning. Now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Single item at regular price. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba -da -ba -ba.